good to be with you guys. If you're new or visiting, my name's Tyler. I'm a downtown pastor. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open up 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5. It's actually our last Sunday in the book of 1 Peter. Um, we're going to be in 2 Peter next week for a couple of weeks. But, but I hope that our time that we've spent so far on this very short but power-packed letter has only proved to strengthen and bolster your trust and your faith in Jesus in every season of life. And the way Peter's going to close this letter, the way he's going to close it is kind of be consistent with how he's been teaching us throughout the entire letter. He's going to close it by talking about this common theme that he's been hitting again and again and again of our hope in the midst of suffering. But in the way he ends the letter, he's actually going to give us one final charge, one final exhortation with the ultimate hope and the ultimate promise in the Christian faith. Let me read to you what this hope and promise is in 1 Peter 5, verses 10 through 11. This is the word of God. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. So over and over again in this letter, Peter has addressed and interpreted suffering for us. He's talked about the suffering that every single human being goes through with pain and sickness and death. He's talked about suffering that Christians experience uniquely when we're faithful to Jesus over everyone else. In ways that you and I are loyal to the words of Jesus when that means people revile us or bring harm against us. And he keeps bringing up suffering in this letter because we've talked about it again and again that that was the experience of the churches he was writing to. First and foremost, he keeps talking about it because the churches he was writing to, that's what they were going through. And what we find out from church history is that right after this letter, these churches he's giving all of this hope to, they're about to go through even more intense seasons of persecution under the reign of Emperor Nero. But the other reason, that's one reason, but the other larger reason that Peter keeps talking about, God keeps speaking to us through Peter about the topic of suffering is because every single one of us in this room and in this life has to deal with and make sense of suffering in this world. Every single one of us. That's why God, through various human authors throughout the Bible, addresses the topic and the reality of the immense amount of human pain and misery in this world. There's so much of it in this life, so God speaks to it so often. Every single one of us is confronted with these horrors. Just this last week, just this last week in Parkland, Florida, we're confronted with the reality of evil and suffering. We can't escape it. No matter how much we may try to, and that means every person, not just Christians, not just the major world religions, but every person, has to respond and interpret it somehow. You may try your best to escape it or numb it, but eventually it will be forced into your face once again. Especially now that we have more access to information than ever before. There's so many great things about technology and all the information that it brings, but one of the sobering things, one of the paralyzing things, quite honestly, 
is that now you and I can know about every evil, horrific, atrocious thing that happens in this world. Listen, there, there was a time before you and I were born, there was a time when the evil you knew about was mostly local in nature. But now, every single day, you can read story after story of the most unthinkable tragedy in any part of the world. It forces you to deal with it on a constant basis. But then suffering becomes an entirely different thing when it moves from a story over there and it becomes your own experience. It's one thing to deal with pain and sorrow and suffering over there. It's quite another when it becomes your experience and your story and affects those whom you love. It's one thing to read about abuse. It's an entirely different thing to talk to a victim of abuse. It's one thing to read an article about cancer. It's another thing, it's quite another thing to watch someone you love or your own body waste away because of it. It's one thing to understand the concept of death. It's quite another for your best friend or your mom or your dad or your brother or your sister be taken by it. It's quite a different thing because you cannot escape it at that point. You can't just go to another website or open another app at that point. It is the home page of your life. I know for me, the vast majority of my life, God has been incredibly merciful to me. Throughout the majority of my life, I have been spared of many sorrows that others have not. But over the last couple of years, I've begun to experience, oh, suffering over there and suffering right here changes your experience. Over the last couple of years, I have buried both of my grandfathers. Death is a different thing when you watch it slowly devour those who were always stronger and wiser than you. I've watched as sin against one another has torn at and severed even the strongest families. I've experienced when you are sinned against from someone else's selfishness, just how powerful shame can be. Just how weak and woundable we are. We may like to present ourselves as strong and no one can touch me and then Someone sins in a way and you realize you are vulnerable to attack and vulnerable to the words of other people and the actions of other people that you love. I've experienced the beauty that is an ultrasound and the horror that it is to see that your baby is not alive anymore. It's one thing to know about suffering. It is quite another to walk through it. And candidly, Many of you in this room have gone through much worse. And as you walk and you experience and you know loss and pain and hurt, here's one thing you learn is that suffering shapes you. It's powerful. There's no one who can walk through suffering and not be changed by it in some form, in some fashion. Suffering is like this raging fire. 
this massive flame that everything it touches is changed by it. That like a fire, it can be destructive. It can take the house that you have built, that you dreamed about, and burn it to the ground to ashes. It can, its heat can disfigure and melt down those things that were beautiful and precious to you. Like a fire, it can refine, it can take metal and turn it into the most costly gem and jewel. It can burn old debris of a forest for a fresh start. No matter how suffering works in your life, I'm telling you, if you walk through it, it's going to change you. You will not be the same person after it because its power is undeniable. And one of the reasons suffering is so powerful and shapes us so much is because suffering is tearing things apart that were never meant to be torn apart. When bodies and souls, families and psyches and love is torn apart, something in you knows it should not be this way. Something in you knows it should not be this way. Cancer shouldn't be this way. You know it in your bones, and we can talk all the time and pontificate about, hey, well, who really knows what is right and wrong? Who really knows what is good and evil? Who really knows what's good for them and good for me? But then you go through personal suffering, and you're reminded, and you're stared in the face of the fact there is evil in this world. You go through personal suffering, and there's no more moral relativism. That's wrong. That's wrong. That should not be. You know it in your bones. That's why when you go through suffering, the natural question arises in your mind, where is God? That's the natural question. When you see suffering, you go through suffering, your natural question is, where's God in this? Because your mind is trying to make sense of how can there be a good, loving, all-powerful God, and yet this happens. All of us wonder. All of us struggle. Psalmists write poetry and songs about it. Even the most Jesus-loving, God-fearing person you know, when they see evil devouring someone they love, they begin to wonder, where is God? And God's response to you in those moments, his response to you in your doubts and your pain and your sorrow is many. But the main claim and the main hope and the main promise from Jesus to you is that it will not always be this way. It will not always be. That this is not the end. His promise is that eventually, somehow, some way, God will take the worst, most horrific moment of your life and work it to good and flourishing for you in the next. That's the hope. That's the promise. That's what his guarantee to us is. His promise is not just simply that he'll be with you in suffering, though he will be. His promise is not just that he's in control of all things, including evil and suffering, though he is. His main promise to you is suffering will end one day and death will be no more and you will have joy and life forever. This is foundational to the Christian faith, fundamental to the Christian faith. So often we get stuck on tertiary issues 
and arguing about all sorts of things and we have forgotten the most basic claim. It doesn't end this way. That's the promise. That's how Peter ends his entire letter. That's how the Bible ends its testimony to who God is. It ends with the hope that we have in heaven. Peter is so sure, as he's writing this, he is so sure of our future reality for those who trust in Christ with God forever that it prompts him to say something and describe our suffering now that at first, at first, if you take it seriously, can come off a little bit insensitive and maybe even cruel. Now, I'm not blaspheming the text, but I want you to see, look at what he's saying, and if you think about going through suffering and what he's saying about it, it can feel somewhat insensitive. Look at verse 10. Look at verse 10, he says, and after you have suffered a little while, Peter says, what you're going through, it's just for a little while. What's fascinating is Paul, the apostle, uses the exact same language, the exact same thought. In 2 Corinthians 4, 17, when he's describing our suffering, he says, for this light, momentary affliction. Peter calls our suffering short. Paul says it's light and momentary. Now, if you take what they're saying serious, at first it can seem insensitive and cruel because it seems like, what are, they, what are they doing? It feels like they're downplaying what you're going through, doesn't it? Peter and Paul, have you ever seen suffering before? Have you ever seen how atrocious things can be here? You ever heard about abuse? How could you say that? I mean, it reminds me of people when they're trying to be comforting to those who are suffering and those who are sorrowful. It kind of reminds you of people who say things that are cliche jargon and they're very thoughtless. They're trying to help but ends up doing more damage than good. When you're suffering, they come to you and they say, maybe if you haven't suffered before, you haven't experienced this yet, and you will. People will say things like, well, everything will be okay. Well, it could have been a lot worse. Look on the bright side of things. You know, they say when God closes a door, he opens a window. When people say these things, they're not malicious. They're just thoughtless. Because what they're saying and what it feels like to you in that moment, having received those words before, having probably said them myself, what really comes off is like you're downplaying what they're going through and saying, it's not that big a deal. I know you're sad, but cheer up. Is that what Paul and Peter are doing? Is that what God is doing? Is he saying, hey, hey, it's only a little while. It's no big deal. I know you're sad. I know there's pain. I know there's loss, but it's really light. Is that what God is saying? No. That's not what God is saying. You can read the book of Job, the Psalms, the book of Lamentations, and all these books God has given to his people to teach you how to mourn and grieve in a godly way. I'm telling you right now, one of the things you have to learn as a Christian is how to mourn with hope in this life. So many of you are young and new to the faith and we love, I love that you're at this church. Older saints will tell you, you have to learn how to mourn with hope. You have to learn how to have hope and not stuff down mourning. You have to learn how to mourn and not have it cancel out hope. You have to learn how to do both. And God has given us 
Psalms and Lamentations and Job to teach you how do you pray with tears? How do you pray your anger? How do you pray your fears and your doubts? He wants to hear all of those things. He wants all of those things to be how we speak to him. No, they're not, God's not downplaying your suffering ever. What they're saying and what they're doing, when they say light and momentary and a little while, it's only in comparison to the next life. It's only in comparison to the life and the joy and the beauty and the love and the happiness the next life will be. He's not downplaying how you feel. They're stretching to show you just how great it will be. They would never downplay your pain. They're just trying to lift your eyes and say, when you get there, it'll seem light, though it wasn't. It'll feel short, though it wasn't. When you get into eternity, It'll swallow up your pain here. That's what they're saying. They're trying to let you see how great your future is, church. Listen to the future he's describing. Verse 10 and 11, this is the future he's describing. In comparison with this, and after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. That day, the God himself of all grace will call you into his eternal glory in Christ. He won't send the messenger. He won't send a preacher or a prophet. He's not gonna give you a book or a podcast. He's not gonna give you a new word from heaven. He's going to come himself, church. God himself. Peter makes it plain, not any errand boy of God, God himself. And what's he gonna do with you? He's going to restore everything ripped from you, the innocence taken from you, the loved one lost, the pain you felt, he's going to restore all this world took from you. He's going to confirm his love for you. He's gonna come to you and go, I know it felt shaky. Here's your confirmation, I loved you the entire time. He's going to strengthen you. He's gonna come to weak arms and weak legs and weak faith and make you strong. He's going to establish you. He's gonna take the roots of your life and drill them down deep with permanence in his kingdom where you'll never be moved and never be shaken and never be fearful again. God himself is going to come to you. Because listen, church, God is not done with his work. He's not done yet. When Jesus said, it is finished on the cross, that didn't mean God was done working. It is finished just means he has paid all of our debt so we can be a part of his new creation. It is finished is describing your work, not his. It is finished to saying, you don't have to work anymore for an identity and a meaning and a place and a hope and a future and love and relationship. That's been taken care of for you. That's done. But God's not done. It is finished as the beginning of the new heavens and new earth. It is finished as the beginning of his kingdom being ushered in and you getting to be a part of it. It's the beginning, not the end for us. This is how... John describes what God is up to because God's not done. Here's what God's going to do, Revelation 21, verses one through five. He says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, 
For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. This is the future for all who trust in Christ. A new heaven and a new earth and a new body and God with us on earth forever. And then in verse four, he uses this imagery of wiping away your tear. He says, I'm going to come and wipe away your tear. What does he mean? What does it mean to wipe away someone's tear? What do you have to do? You take your thumb, you swipe across their cheek to wipe away their tear from their eyes. I know that because I do it with my kids all the time. When Henry or Elle is crying and sad or Eliza is crying and sad, I take them in my arms and just instinctually, I wipe away tears from their eyes. No one's ever told me to do it. No one's ever commanded me. It's just this natural fatherly response to my children. I just want them to know that I'm near them. I'm not doing it for functionality's sake. It's not for utility. I'm not trying to get tears out of their eyes so they can see clearly. What I'm doing is saying, I'm near you. I feel what you feel. Because wiping away someone's tear requires you to be tender. It requires you to be close. And when God says, I'm going to come to each individual person and I'm gonna wipe away your tear, he's saying, I'm going to be tender and near you. I'm gonna be tender to all the horrors and evil your eyes saw. I'm going to be tender and near to all the pain your body felt, to all the ways your heart was torn apart. I'm going to come and be near you. And the biggest difference between the way I treat my kids and the way God will treat us on that day is when I wipe away a tear from my children's eyes, here's the thing that I know. I know that won't be the last tear they cry. As much as I wish it wasn't so, I know there'll be more tears of pain and sorrow for them. But when God comes to you and he takes his thumb and he wipes away your tear, that will be the last tear you ever cry in pain. That'll be the last one. When he does it to me, that will be the last tear of sorrow I ever cry again, forever. That's his promise because what's he doing? He's making all things brand new. That's his promise. And we don't think about these things. We truly don't, at least not enough. We rarely talk about heaven. I cannot think, I was doing this throughout the day, I cannot think of a time recently I've heard another Christian just talk about heaven or encourage someone with the future. Too often what you and I do, and I'm as guilty of as anyone else in this room, we trivialize Christianity 
It's being primarily about God helping us make our emotional and relational lives just a little bit better. Too often, Jesus is only just our special counselor, helps us work through our issues and anxieties, just helps our lives be a little bit better. Just a little bit better relationships. And a little more steady emotionally. And a little more connected to other people. And a little bit better budget. And a little bit better personality. And a little bit better planning. A little bit better personality. A little bit better acting. A little bit better behaving. A little bit better thinking. And so often in our culture and our impulses, we treat Jesus like he's just our little mixture of help that helps us. And other people may not use Jesus. They, they use yoga or therapist or Islam or Buddhism or work or faith or they bike a lot. I just look at Jesus a lot. We view him as just this special counselor to help us make life a little bit better. And if you shrink Jesus down to just this little role. And listen, he is our counselor. He will change your emotional and relational health. But if you just make him that, you truncate and you simplify and you miss the story of God. Jesus is not content with you being just a little bit better version of you. He wants a brand new version of you that never dies and never suffers anymore. He wants new heavens and new earth. He wants everything made brand new. That's what he's after. That's where he's going. He'll never settle for his people being a little bit better versions until they're completely brand new. This is the beautiful story we are being called up into. And yet, we still don't talk or think about it. Why? Why? Now, there's several different reasons why, I think. One is I think we have this faulty notion that somehow you can be so heavenly minded and be of no earthly good we have this faulty notion that there's a way to be, think about the future so much and the heaven to come that you don't help with all the hells that are here now. I want you to know that's a faulty notion. Most men and women who have had biblical views of heaven have been the most helpful now, but we tend to think that way. But the deeper reason, the deeper reason you and I, I think, don't think about our eternal future is that deep down, listen, we don't believe in happily ever afters. We don't believe in them. Deep down, we think stories that end with eternal beauty and joy forever are fairy tales. They're fairy tales. Deep down, what you and I, I think, genuinely believe, maybe more than you'd like to admit, that deep down the way we operate and we function, the way we respond to our future is we're functional nihilists who think there's nothing more than matter and molecules and eventually everything dies and burns out, including our sun. That deep down we think only Disney movies end in happily ever after and only simpletons believe it. Deep down we think tr truly smart and sophisticated people understand that life ends a lot more like Fight Club than Frozen. Stories that end with what was broken being set right and love triumphing over evil and winter being lifted so the life of spring can rush in forever and ever, that's for children. That's for children. Adults know better. 
Adults are cynical. This world is training you how to be cynical. So we hear these stories and we think deep in our hearts, well, the real story is Anna and Elsa eventually get jealous of each other and Kristoff has some secret life in the woods that's crazy that we didn't know about, right? Selling ice, whatever that is, right? Don't trust him, can't trust him. Talk to an animal that long, can't trust him, right? We get cynical, we get suspicious. We think, surely there's no way it ends that way because so many of us, and some of you haven't had this happen yet, but your heroes begin to fail you. People you thought who would never let you down do. People you thought were moral and wholesome aren't. And it teaches you, be cynical, be suspicious, even if the promise of beauty and joy and life is from God. It probably isn't true. And I can, complete, I can completely understand and relate to this cynicism because when you think about the scope we're talking about here, it's outside of our minds. We have no paradigm for it. God is talking about making literally everything from black holes to supernovas to trees to plants to us, everything brand new. For the kingdom of God to rush into our reality with absolute fullness. We have no category for that. It's outside, outside of our imaginations and so often the Bible, when you read it, especially if you're new to the faith or you're not in the faith, when you read the scriptures, this talk seems very lofty and very mythological when compared to our reality. Because this Bible tells you about a new heavens and new earth with no pain and no death and no suffering, and yet our reality seems to be filled with those things. And so often the Christian faith is this tension of glorious realities and very humble means. And what's gonna happen is our enemy is gonna try to deceive you and tell you the disconnect there means you, he can't be trusted. The disconnect between the promise and my experience seems like he can't be trusted. But I want you to know God has always been giving to his people incredible, incomprehensible realities through ordinary, mundane means. I love the way Peter ends his letter. The way he ends his letter reminds you and me that the way God strengthens your faith in the future it's through ordinary rhythms and routines of life now. Look at verse 11 through 14. So here he has, Peter has this lofty statement. To him be the dominion forever and ever, amen. Not the end of the letter, verse 12, what does he say? By Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, talking about the church in Rome, sends you greetings. So does Mark, my son, greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Peter's letter ends with the reminder that these infinitely weighty promises come to you through humble means. So how do you have these promises? Think about it. How do you know resurrection is coming? How do you know God himself will restore and confirm and strengthen and establish you? How do you know? Did he write it in the sky for you to see? Did he take the clouds and write a long paragraph so you could see it and know it's from him? No. Why do you know it? 
because a faithful brother named Silvanus took a piece of parchment paper that Peter wrote these words on, and Peter handed it to him, and he traveled across the Mediterranean and delivered it to these churches. He looked like another guy, another messenger, nothing special, and yet with him were all the promises of God. Well, but how can I understand it? How can I know this is truly from God? How do I know? Who teaches me? He says, faithful teachers who exhort and declare to you what the true grace of God is and for you to stand firm in it. But how can I know he's with me? In the midst of suffering, how can I know he's near? Other Christians will send you warm words of encouragement. That he'll give you a family in the church. He'll give you a family in the church that gives you holy and appropriate physical affection of comfort. Do you know how God strengthens your faith with his people? You know how he gives you faith to believe that resurrection will be the very first day of your eternity? By a Christian who's able to give you a hug and an encouragement. That's how he does it. Just this week, I was meeting with partners in our church who are going through, I mean, horrific suffering. Just awful suffering. And we were talking this week and I just was in awe of their faith. Just the way God has sustained them and given them faith to trust in the midst of something I, honest to God, can't understand. And they said this line to me this week. They said this. They said, it has been in the midst of the worst time of our lives where the church has been the physical presence and reminder that Jesus is real and he's with us. They told me, Tyler, we, we knew the theology of the church. We knew what God had said, but it's been in this worst season we have ever gone through where we know how God uses his people to remind us he's here. It is very easy for God to seem distant and very easy for his promises to seem like a myth and made up when you're far from his people. It's very easy. Why? Because he uses the ordinary means of his church to teach you about your future. Do you know what the church can do? Having other Christians who know and love you, when you're suffering, you need someone who's gonna sit there and just cry with you. They don't have any wisdom, they don't have any counsel. All they have are tears for you and say, I'm sorry. Friends who just know how to give you a hug and say, I'm with you and that's it. One of the things that breaks my heart is when how many people are casual in their commitment to the church because nothing in their lives is broken yet. And they believe in Jesus and they're trying to follow him but they're just casual in their commitment. And they don't realize how badly they need the, the church until suffering comes and they have nowhere to turn to and God feels distant and it breaks my heart when they call our offices because they have no one to talk to. I hate that they have to call a stranger because there is no one to listen. Because it's in those moments where he uses, hey, warm greetings from the church for you to be reminded, oh yeah, God's with me. You have to know it has always been God's way to communicate his glorious truths through humble means. Think about it. How, how did God come 
to you and me in the flesh. How did Jesus come? Did he descend on a cloud so you could see him? Was he born in some ornate palace so everyone knew the son of God was there? No, he came through the ordinary humble means of the womb of a teen mom. Well, how did he grow up? Did, was it obvious that he was clearly the son of God? He, had some, he was a genius or had supernatural powers and we could see from a young age? No. Jesus, the God of creation, had to learn like every toddler how to walk and talk, and be taken care of by his creation, and no one even noticed him for 30 years. Think about how he paid for your sin. Did he pay for your sin with large sums of wealth, and power, and notoriety, and importance? No. He paid for your sin through weakness, and suffering, and death, on a Roman cross that probably had the old blood from other criminals they had killed on it. The Romans didn't see anything special about what was going on. You wanna know how I know that? There were two other random criminals next to him. God has always been bringing his kingdom to burst through, through ordinary and even awful things, and yet all the while God is bringing glorious realities into being. It's always been his way. I love the way C.S. Lewis, as usual, describes the closing of history. As you think about your future, I wanna give you a little word picture. This is how, the last paragraph of the last book in his work, The Chronicles of Narnia. And in it, he's gonna describe for you and for me what it's like to enter into your eternity. Listen to what he says. This is Aslan the lion is speaking. And as he spoke, he no longer looked to them like a lion. But the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all the stories. We can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last they were beginning chapter one of the great story which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. Every single human being is longing for this world. That's why human beings can't help but want to make the world better now. Why? Because you wanna be a part of the perfect world to come. That's why you can't help but try to fix things now because you wanna be a part of the world when everything's fixed. That's why Jesus came. Not to make your life a little bit better, but when he said, it is finished on the cross. He was saying to anyone who would trust in him, the end of your story has been written. My blood has sealed your hope and your future, and it's not up for debate, and your story ends like this, happily ever after. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you into his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever and ever 
and ever. Amen. In every season, that is how your story ends. Let's pray together. Father, how can we respond to such great promises? God, so often when we think about these future realities and promises, God, deep down, it tends to raise up more questions than it does faith. Deep down, God, we begin to wonder, is it possible, is it real? Instead of thinking, it's real, it's true, I can have hope. God, there are people in this room who've gone through such awful things, even the promise seems impossible. Jesus, would you remind them that when you came, you knew what pain was like. Because God, every single one of us, there's not one of us who doesn't get scars in this life. God, so many of us have pain and wounds that we have learned how to cope with and stuff down deep, and yet God, we're realizing that's not how we fix these things. God, we've tried to cope through all sorts of things, through substances, through people, through religion, and yet, Jesus, you're the only one who can deal with them in any real way. Jesus, you're the only one because you came and you experienced what suffering was like. You know what it's like to have darkness overwhelm you. You know what it's like to be abandoned by those who should love you. You know what it's like to have your side pierced through. Jesus, you know every single sorrow in this room better than any of us. And yet your word over our lives is not doubt and possibilities and temporary comfort. Jesus, your word over our life is resurrection and life and hope and a future and love and beauty and peace and a new heaven and a new earth and old friends and no death and no mourning and no pain anymore. God, I want to believe it. I, where else am I going to go? No one else has the power to deal with these things. And so God, we bank on you. We hope in you. And we don't let cynicism erode our faith and trust that one day, one day, our faith will be made sight and all things will be made new.